Biz News Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. I'm Stuart Lohman, and it's Wednesday, the 29th of September. Welcome to this edition of the Biz News Power Hour. On the show today, we get investment insights from Brenthurst Wealth's Magnus Haystack. Justin chats to Adapt IT CEO Tiffany Dunstan as well as Sean Keenan from Easy Equities to give us some insight into what retail investors were busy doing in the month of September. Jared chats to Fly Sapphire's CEO, Elmar Conradi, as they look to spread their wings to Mauritius. Our partners at the Financial Times dig into inflation, which they say has been used as a political, political weapon. And then Johan Snader is a prosthesis doctor who helped uh, Nintendo Mchlangu. He got two Olympic golds at the Paralympics. He chats to our UK correspondent, Linda van Tilburg. But Jared, just let us in on what's been accessed on the Biz News Network. I'm Jared Neves, and here are the most accessed stories today on our website, biznews.com. Number one, taking on Nick Hudson, Business Tribe member, criticizes the Panda chairman. Second place is Panda's Nick Hudson on the politics of COVID. And in third, ANC has reduced South Africa to beggar status on Biz News TV on YouTube. In first place, Investment Insights with Stephen Nathan. Second, when communists are around, there's never a bargain. That's Pete Fallon on China. And then yesterday's Flash Briefing. On Biz News Radio on Spotify, Rob Herself still proving popular with his Q&A at the Biz News Investment Conference. In second place, Rob Herself's follow-up interview with Alec Hogg. This is our government. If they're destroying the country, vote them out. And in third Passive Investing is the Future, an interview with Stephen Nathan. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bright Rock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. I'm Nadja Swartz and here are your news headlines for the 29th of September. President Saul Ramaphosa has authorized the release of the Special Investigating Unit report into the Digital Vibes corruption scandal that erupted in May this year. The report focuses on the irregular awarding of 150 million rand in contracts to Digital Vibes by the National Department of Health. The contracts were found to be fruitless and wasteful expenditure by the SIU and that close associates of former Minister Zweli Mkhize had engaged in fraudulent activity. Mkhize himself has also been implicated in the report as, at best, being improper and, at worst, being engaged in unlawful activity. The report recommends that Deputy DG Anbin Pillay be criminally prosecuted for financial misconduct. The state capture inquiry has been granted a fifth extension, giving the team three months to complete three years' work. On Wednesday, the chairs plea for yet another lifeline for the process, which has cost in excess of one billion rand, was awarded in the North Hutting High Court. Judge Marmela granted the extension and handed down an order moving the deadline by which it is required to complete its work from September 30th to December 31st. Marmela's order indicates that President Saul Ramaphosa must take the necessary steps to gazette the new time frame. Ramaphosa was among six respondents in the case Sondo brought to extend the lifeline of a quasi-judicial process that was initially set to last only 180 days, but which has run public hearings for more than three years. Envoys from some of the world's richest nations met with South African cabinet ministers on Tuesday to discuss a climate deal that could see billions of dollars put toward ending the country's dependence on coal. The delegation is trying to hammer out an agreement that can be announced at COP26 climate talks, which start in Glasgow, Scotland, on October the 31st. The discussion with South Africa, the world's 12th biggest emitter of greenhouse gases, include representatives from the US, UK, Germany, France, and the European Union. While South Africa is under pressure to cut its dependence on coal, which accounts for more than 80% of its power generation, it needs finance to facilitate the transition to cleaner energy. Justin, how are the markets looking? I'm Justin R. Roberts, and this is the Market Report. The JSE All Share Index is up at 64,100. In the currency markets, the rand is weaker against all the major currencies, 15 rand, 14 cents to the dollar, 
20 rand 38 cents to the pound and 17 rand 63 cents to the euro. Gold is low at $1,738 an ounce. Krugerrand is trading at around 27,500 rand. Brent crude is up, trading around the $80 mark barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 635,000 rand. In the financial news, the battle over Sassel's handling of climate change cranked up a notch after the group rejected climate lobbying revolution resolution filed by two of its shareholders, Aon Investment Management and non-profit shareholder activism organization Just Share this month co-filed the resolution with Sassel. Sassel spokesperson Alex Anderson confirmed the company received the resolution but rejected it. Anderson said that the disclosure contained in Sassel's climate change report for the year ended June 2021, which the company released after receiving the resolution, largely complied with the resolution's requirements. Distel says it is making progress in takeover talks with Europe's largest brewer, Heineken, looking to conclude this process as soon as possible, as shareholders wait to hear about their payout. SA's largest alcohol producer recently held on to its dividend for its year-end June, citing this as a condition of the talks, although it will declare one if no agreement is reached. The maker of Savannah Cider and Clipdrift Brandy had said previously it expected to announce an outcome by the end of September or by Friday. This market report was made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Wednesday, September 29th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Inflation is the word of the day here at the briefing. Inflation fears led to the biggest sell-off in the U.S. stock market since May. Inflation has become a political weapon in the latest battle in U.S. Congress, and fueling fears of inflation are rising energy prices. And we'll take a little detour from inflation and talk about China's latest attempt to clamp down on cryptocurrency trading. China's been trying to get rid of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies for years now, and people have always found a way around it. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. Prices are going up in part because of the stimulus measures the Federal Reserve put in place during the pandemic. Inflation has prompted the U.S. Central Bank to indicate it could raise interest rates next year, and inflation is affecting markets and U.S. politics. So first, politics. Right now, U.S. Republican lawmakers are battling Democrats' attempt to lift the government's borrowing limit. Yesterday, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warned that the U.S. risks running out of money by October 18th if Congress can't agree to raise the debt ceiling. Republicans have argued that raising the debt limit would fuel inflation because it would mean more money pumped into the economy. Our U.S. political correspondent, Lauren Fedor, reminds me that lawmakers aren't just thinking about the economy here, but also next year's midterm elections. And when it comes to the Republican side, they see inflation, the economy, the Republicans' ability to handle the economy as a winning issue. And so if they can go into next year's midterm saying, you know, we're the party that will make you richer, we'll make sure that, you know, prices are manageable and you have more money in your pocket for you and your family at the end of the day, uh, and the Democrats are going to make you poorer, uh, they, they certainly see that as a winning message. Democrats' argument is that Republicans are conflating multiple issues, and they will argue that the increase in borrowing is required in order to afford, pay for things that have already been in motion, uh, programs that were already approved last year and even further back in the Trump administration. Now, Lauren, we should remind listeners that in most years, the debt limit being raised is a routine event in Washington, right? Yeah, I mean, you're right in the sense that the debt ceiling has been raised dozens of times in in recent years. In fact, in the Trump administration alone, the Republicans voted to to raise the debt ceiling three times. They've obviously changed their tune here. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the political landscape that we're in. Uh, you know, in this case, the Republicans are leaning really hard into their argument that they think that the Democrats have been irresponsible when it comes to public spending. And they've actually sought to link this whole debate to another debate that's causing a lot of headaches in Washington. And that has to do with Joe Biden's legislative agenda. You know, you might remember that there's this $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill still in the cards. And then there's a much bigger $3.5 trillion budget plan. The Republicans largely say this is way too much money. This is way too much spending. And they're basically arguing this is irresponsible and we're not going to underwrite it anymore. Lauren Fedor covers Capitol Hill for the FT.
Now, in financial markets, inflation and the looming prospect of higher interest rates are prompting investors to sell government bonds. A sell-off that began last week continued into this week and has rattled equities as investors reposition themselves for the prospect of more hawkish central bank policy. It hit Tech stocks especially hard. Yesterday, the Nasdaq fell almost 3%. The S&P 500 ended the day more than 2% lower, its biggest loss since May. Here's the FT's U.S. Capital Markets correspondent, Kate Duguid. So investors were somewhat surprised, I think, last week by both the Fed and the Bank of England pushing forward rate hike expectations. Both the Bank of England and the Federal Reserve also increased their expectations of inflation. So while uh, inflation numbers haven't actually risen yet, the fact that both of these very important central banks are expecting higher inflation for longer has investors somewhat spooked. What happened yesterday was that we also saw big losses in the tech sector. Investors view tech valuations um, very much in terms of, of the company's future growth. So what that means is that when you're facing the prospect of higher inflation, higher interest rates, that growth, that future growth will be impacted. The FT's Kate Duguid covers U.S. capital markets. Adding to inflation fears is the sharp rise in energy prices. Oil, natural gas, coal, you name it, energy is getting more expensive, just as winter is approaching. Yesterday, Brent crude rose past $80 a barrel for the first time since 2018. It's really about the supply and demand fundamentals, as they call them in the market. Derek Brower is our U.S. energy editor. He says those supply constraints are pushing up prices in other sectors, too. OPEC, the cartel of oil producers, is cutting a lot of supply still. U.S. shale producers these days are not growing very quickly at all because stock market investors in shale companies don't want them to grow. So they're not spending on drilling. So those two forces are coming to bear on the supply side. And then we have this recovery of the global economy and the reopening of economies. So there's a big surge in demand as well. And oil prices could go even higher. Derek cites a Goldman Sachs report that predicts oil going to $90 by the end of the year. And oil is still the lifeblood of the global economy, so it'll feed through into all other prices. And governments around the world are already worried about inflation. The other problem is that other commodities, other energy commodities in particular, are rising fast in their price as well. So you have natural gas that's hitting record highs, uh, record prices in Asia and Europe and in the U.S., is up about 200% in the past year. So natural gas is used for heating, it's used for electricity, and those costs will feed through to the wider economy and to household bills as well. So that these are big problems that are facing uh, consumers, and because they face consumers or voters, they also face governments in economies like the UK, where there's an energy crisis right now, uh, in the US, where Joe Biden has already spoken about his concern around uh, rising gasoline prices, and in China, where there are power outages right now. Derek Brower is the FT's U.S. energy editor. China's government isn't just dealing with power adages. It's trying to wrap its regulatory arms around cryptocurrency. The country has been a big market for cryptocurrency trading and Bitcoin mining. Authorities have pushed parts of the domestic industry offshore, though. And last week, the central bank and nine other agencies made it illegal for overseas exchanges to provide services to Chinese users. Ryan McMurrow is the FT's tech correspondent in Beijing. From the beginning, they've been very wary of any digital currency that could let Chinese people thwart uh, capital controls like a, an ordinary Chinese person is is only allowed to convert the equivalent of 50,000 RMB into $50,000 per year. And you're supposed to have very specific uses for that. So cryptocurrencies is a way to get around capital controls. And it's also just a way to get around like the strict control of the currency. The initial coin offerings was one of the first areas they cracked down on because they, they saw that leading to fraud and, and various other things. So Ryan, realistically, how effective could these latest curbs be? China's been trying to get rid of Bitcoin and, and other cryptocurrencies for years now, and, and people have always found a way around it. But if the exchanges no longer let Chinese people trade on them, 
then it might be very hard for Chinese people to find buyers and sellers. Yeah, and and how have those cryptocurrency exchanges responded? Are they generally doing what Beijing wants or no? So far, it's uh, Huobi, the the largest exchange, has said they're going to offboard Chinese users. Um, Binance has made it slightly harder. Um, in other exchanges, I don't I don't think they've really put out any uh, announcements yet. So um, it's not like the entire offshore exchange world has said no more Chinese users. Uh, that is definitely what Beijing wants. But so far, there are some that seem to be still willing to onboard Chinese users and let Chinese users trade. Ryan McMurrow is the FT's China technology reporter. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. I'm Justin Roberts of Biz News, and with me for today's Market Insights is Brentus Wealth founder Magnus Hastek. Magnus, let's start off with the RAND. It's blown out in the last few days from 14 RAND to 15 RAND in a matter of days. I've listened to nearly all of your interviews with Alec this year. You've consistently said that although it's notoriously tough to call short-term movements, the longer-term trend suggests a persistent weakening in the RAND and as a result creating a loss of purchasing power for South Africans. Do you expect this trend to continue? Yes, good afternoon, Justin. One must bear in mind that the last five years, the RAND has actually not um, declined substantially against the dollar. It was volatile during that period, but your RAND at 15 is roughly where it was five years ago, which is very surprising. But nevertheless, our stock market did not have a great period. So anything linked to our market, notwithstanding the stable RAND, has not performed very well. Here's the danger problem or the signs of danger. And the, and the reason why the RAND was so stable is what we had the very accommodative uh, monetary stance by the U.S. Federal Reserve. You know, the tapering or the pumping money into the system, humongous amounts of money into the system, keeping interest rates low in the States. We seem to have reached a point where interest rates in the, in the United States can start moving higher. And that is a very definite warning sign of the RAND dollar exchange rate. And on the other hand, at the same time as these things happen, we've got the slowdown in China with the the, the, the Chinese government uh, trying to cool down the economy and impact on, on the housing and construction. And they've been heavy buyers of our products all along. And if that also comes at the same time, that'll put pressure on our balance of payments and we can... And I'm not predicting. It's a scenario that I'm sketching. People always say, oh, you predicted. I said, no, it's a scenario game. You change your scenarios as time goes by. I'm just saying those are the two factors that we're looking at as far as the RAND is concerned. So my advice to people is buckle up. It could be a rough three to five years if these scenarios play out as we expect. And obviously, well, we won't get it 100% correct. So we've gone from fairly neutral on the rand dollar to fairly for fairly uh, bullish on the dollar and buying dollars very aggressively. Magnus, you've just chosen a five-year period to look back. Let's take it back 15 years. 361 is one of the asset managers I follow closely. Most of the hedge funds have managed to achieve around 15% returns in rand terms per annum since inception around 15 years ago, which takes some doing. However, given the currency weakness over that period, it results in around 7% return per annum in dollar terms. That's an 8% differential, and it makes a huge difference when compounded for that period of time. I guess that underpins the importance of taking a stance on the RAND and its effect on your investment returns. It does have, and it sometimes confuses people. And, and they always think it's, it's, if, you, if you're talking offshore, it's a simple RAND dollar call. It's not. You also have to look at the underlying growth rates. And that's where in the last five years we've not grown in South Africa. The macro picture was very poor. And um, you can see it in the returns of our non-offshore funds. You can just go and look at any of our top uh, local equity flexible funds. And I'm not going to name names again. But there are a couple on very large ones. We've given you 1% per annum over five years. And if you take out the, the friction costs... You actually made no money in over five years. It's been a very, very poor 
uh, a five-year period for people who did not have offshore exposure. So uh, a lot of people are now finding out it hasn't been a great place to stick around with your money because the economy has been so poor and the profits of companies have been under tremendous pressure. And I don't see it changing. I, I really, you know, I, I sometimes get quite alarmed when I see these bullish commentators about now is the time to buy and our market's undervalued. I, I'm seeing other things there which I don't like and I, and I talk about it and I don't care what people think about it. I just don't see it. I mean, I wouldn't touch banks. I wouldn't touch retailers. I think the average man in the street is broke. There's no consumption expenditure coming through. You can't get a loan at the banks nowadays. They're very, very coy about how many loans they're granting, especially higher-end loans. I mean, the private equity uh, bank credit extension this year, I think, is negative. I mean, how can you get economic growth, consumer spending, when the loan extensions are, are negative? So I, I see a different picture, and, and it's not a great one. Magnus, you've been mentioning Japan as an exciting investment destination in recent weeks. I read an interesting tweet earlier this week that in order to have outperformed in the month of September, you would have needed either exposure to Japan or the energy sector. Japan's had its difficulties in the last 30 years or so with deflation and as a result, bad investment returns. But what's changed? Well, the politics, uh, they've changed the, um, you know, there's a change of government taking place and they're hoping that the new guys who come in will be more accommodative and more free market orientated and pump more money into the system. But Japan has been a, has been a very nice diversification from the U.S., over the last 10 years or so. We don't talk about Japan in South Africa. We don't understand the language, the culture, the market. So we never talk about Japan. But you know, you've got to remember the Japanese stock market, if memory serves me, is still the third or fourth largest stock market in the world. It's a massive, humongous stock market with many, many, many uh, global companies listed on there, Toyota, Nikon, you name it, they're there. And, but we just don't have anybody following Japan from South Africa, so it tends to get forgotten. We have, as our diversifier, been putting some money in Japan, and it does very well when the rest of the world tanks. It comes through and, and it gives you what it should be doing, some diversification. So, yes, top market so far this month is, uh, is Japan. It's up 6%. The rest is down between 2 and 20 Magnus, I know you like to target themes. Tech and healthcare specifically, you've been bullish on for the better part of a decade. But where do you sit on the ESG fence? I haven't made up my mind yet, so I'm not going to give you an answer. We're still grappling with it. I still think it's in its infancy in where you can get the ESG funds or are they pure ESG funds or not. So it's a little bit of cloudy there. The, my, my crystal ball is a little bit... Um, I need to, It needs a little bit of dusting of... Pull out El Brasso and start polishing it, and then then we'll talk later. I know you're also a big advocate for a few of Signia's ETFs. They've recently launched an emerging market ETF targeting jurisdictions in the East, such as China. Despite China's risk, would this be something worth diversifying into one's portfolio? As you say, one of America's great economists, Harry Markowitz, did say that diversification is the only free lunch in investing. You know, from a South African perspective, you must understand you have to look at other parts of the world. And they will go all go in cycles. Nothing goes in the same cycle. Last 10 years has all been developed markets, USA in particularly. Um, there will be a time that emerging market starts outperforming. And then in that broader market, you'll have markets within markets that will do better. Taiwan, for instance, will, be, will do better than, uh, than Hong Kong, for instance. But you've got to keep your eye on the ball. So it is a nice, uh, as far as Sydney is concerned, they now have a, r a range of, of funds that covers you from the, the fourth industrial revolution through to the large market cap ETFs, through to the healthcare innovation funds, which I like very much, and also been doing very well, by the way. Right through to Japan, you can buy a Japan ETF from Signia, gives you the exposure that you require. You don't need to understand the language. You can just fill in an application form and send them some money. They'll do it for you. So it's a, it's a nice addition to their range of funds. Signia is very smart in the way that they're trying to collect more money into their money market funds on this zero-fee basis. And that's rattling the, the other players. And they're all saying, why is Signia doing this? And this is what's very important. 
to, to, to the lay person out there who doesn't always understand the behind the scenes things in the asset management world. Signia, as most other large asset managers, have run up against that Reserve Bank 30% offshore exposure within each company. Now, in order to get around this, you need to create more local assets, which you can then use to increase your offshore uh, offering to your clients. So they're trying to attract very rapidly a lot of money into the money market funds, which will give them leeway with the Reserve Bank to say, Hi, guys, we have another billion rand. Please, sir, can we have some more money and take it offshore? So it's very smart what Signia is doing. They're actually doing that. They're taking a loss on the money market fund. It's kind of a loss leader situation. But they will probably make it up if they can open the uh, doors to more offshore exposure. And that will come in a very quick and a big way when it happens. So that's just as a matter of fact why they're doing the zero fee story. Magnus, I was going through your Twitter this morning when prepping. I saw you think it's time to have some money in hedge funds. Although you're also an advocate for ETFs, they're kind of the polar opposite from a fees perspective. What's your thesis for hedge funds at this time? You know, our market is, you know, as you mentioned, 361. We know the guys. We know them very well. We use some of their funds. And a lot of our clients also want hedge funds. And they don't want to be fully exposed without a parachute to the stock market depends on your risk profile, your tolerance to risk age, etc. And we've been searching the market for a long time for appropriate hedge funds. Some of the hedge funds we've came across have fees of up to 10%, which we found criminal. I'm not naming names, but they, um, they are there and they're advertising very heavily. So we went through a due diligence. We checked out a couple of hedge funds and we looked at the Obsidian hedge funds, which are smallish funds. Costs are acceptable. Performance has been great. And we also like dealing with companies where we can pick up the phone and, and speak to someone called Chris or Royce or whatever your name is. Take me through your structures. Take me how, how do you protect capital. That to us at Brentist is very important. And, and it's one of the reasons we, we try and avoid these big, massive conglomerates. We just take your money and never speak to you again. We like having that interaction with our fund managers, which we get with 361. Uh, we can pick up the phone and say, sigh or whatever, take us through your thinking. And we like that because we don't get paid by anybody except our clients. And our clients ask us those questions. They say, have you spoken to the fund manager? What is his view? What is her view? So we like dealing with smallish companies and we've chosen Obsidian as one of our partners on the hedge fund space. Lastly, Magnus, the precious metals and iron ore producers, they've lost about 18 months' worth of gains in the last month. Where do you sit with the commodity producers on the JSE? You know, when, I'm, when I started running in October last year, I looked at this and I said, where the heck is this run coming from? And it just blew out, as you all know, and it, 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 everybody just made money hand over fist. The tax man was coining it. And I just, I think I tweeted once or twice, I said, listen, I've seen this movie before. This is now commodity boom bust number nine kind of stuff. It's almost like Rambo, Rambo 11 or something like that. I said, I've seen this movie before. I'm not biting into it. In fact, we put out a document written by our, our managing director, Brian Butchard. We actually said, we're not falling for this trick. And of course, last two months, it's lost 50% back to where you were in October last year. And I suspect it's going to bite us when the, when, the, when the revenue numbers come out for the next six months. You know, that profit we made in the first quarter of this year is all going to be given back. So that was a, that was a boom bust, version number seven. And uh, it's, it's not time to get back into it. I'm Justin Roberts of Biz News, and you've been listening to Wednesday's Market Insights with Magnus Haystack. How does business empower our nation? By bringing produce to our tables, giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us, and the tools that shape our cities. And by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why South Africa banks on business. Business banks on us. Standard Bank. It can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. I'm Justin Roberts of Biz News, and with me today is CEO of Adapt IT, 
Tiffany Dunstan. Tiffany, there's so much to talk about, much more so than on average ADAPT IT results day. Whilst doing research for this interview, I was very interested to find out that you merged InfoWave Holdings with Sabu's Adapt IT back in 2007 to co-found the company we know today. Despite that being over a decade ago, could, could you give us some background? Uh, I can, Justin. Thank you. Yes, that is accurate. Um, I was the CEO of InfoWave Holdings at the time, and I had been for several years. I'd been with uh, InfoWave since 1999. And in fact, uh, Spoo was previously with InfoWave many moons ago. He started his business in 2003, and I was involved in that um, on his board for a couple of years as an enterprise development initiative. He grew very successfully, and uh, we then conceived of the idea to merge the businesses in the end of 2007. I guess given all the corporate action with Valaris and Huge, there's been less scrutiny on these numbers than what you were used to. But what are your general comments on the results? I think that, you know, that the climate was very difficult for the whole period of 12 months as compared with, you know, three three months of COVID in the previous financial results. So it was a protracted period of, of uncertainty and difficult trading conditions, particularly hitting a couple of our verticals, um, you know, in predominantly the hospitality sector and, and the, the uh, sectors that have a high proportion of project work, like our energy sector. Clients would naturally be deferring projects in a time of uncertainty particularly in the oil and gas sector. So we did see a slowdown there. Um, on, on the flip side, though, we have um, a, a very diversified business and a high degree of annuity income because, you know, mostly we sell, um, we provide mission-critical software to our clients. So um, irrespective of the trading conditions, they need to uh, use our, our software in their businesses. So our annuity income went up to 66% from 62% because the mix of revenue changed to have more of the underlying work and, and, you know, less of a project ratio of revenue in the period. So I think we maintained our margins quite well. We were quite defensive um, in terms of protecting, uh, looking for cost efficiencies. We did have some small downsizing exercises in a couple of the businesses where the contraction in demand was uh, going to be for the longer term. And we have managed to be quite defensive on the margin uh, side of things. So I think uh, all in all, against that backdrop of a very difficult trading period, um, you know, sound results. Before we get into the nitty gritty of the Valaris offer, I've seen today that Huge Group has sold its 1.9% stake in Adapt IT. I spoke to Sabu on a few occasions in studio earlier this year. It seemed by all account that him and the rest of the management team were viciously against James Herbst led Huge Group taking control. What were the reasons for that? Uh, well, I think it, it was an unsolicited offer, uh, you know, which is often characterized as hostile uh, in the media. And um, and I guess, you know, there was no uh, real meeting of the minds or engagement with uh, huge leadership. Um, I, for one, have never spoken to or met with any huge leaders. So I think that, you know, if one wants to put a business combination together, you have to, uh, you, know, you really do have to engage and connect with the people. Um, so, you know, uh, I, I would say that's probably, you know, the the the, the failing in the strategy there. Um, having said that, uh, we did not view the strategic uh, potential synergies in the same way that the huge group did, um, you know, and and therefore, uh, you know, we 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 don't perceive that the Adapt IT group has lost anything from a strategic perspective uh, with regards to the huge offer. The Valaris offer all seems but a foregone conclusion, an all-cash offer at seven rand a share, ignoring independent expert opinions and the fair and reasonable test and the rest of the theatre created by the JSE listings requirements. The offer does seem light from a valuation perspective for a tech IT-related business. What's your take on that? Well, obviously, Justin, this offer's come in on the back of the unsolicited offer, uh, you know, and, and in that circumstance, uh, and, and you know we were trading at just over one rand, only only you know, a year ago or so. Um, so I think that, um, you know, one must look at it against that backdrop. One must also look at the, the um, fair value range, um, you know, uh, identified by the notice capital expert um, was between seven and nine rand, oh nine. So it is at the bottom of the range. Naturally, a buyer would want to uh, get the best deal possible. Uh, we are the same when we make acquisitions. Uh, astute buyers will, will look at the market and say, what can we buy this asset for? Having said that, our shareholders did approve 
of the scheme of arrangement and supported it with a vote of 87%. So there's clearly support uh, for the transaction. Shareholders have yet to make their elections. Um, we're still in the process of fulfilling the regulatory requirements, which includes five countries in which we need competition commission approval, the predominant and main one being the South African Competition Commission. And on that, through our advisors, we have had very constructive engagement with the South African ComCom. We hope that we will get that result uh, within within the month of October. Uh, we have two of the four other African country ap approvals, and with the rest um, uh, of the conditions precedent, we're in the process of fulfilling. Once we have all those conditions fulfilled, we will put the timetable to shareholders to finalize their elections, um, and then we will know the outcome. Of course, Valaris needs to get a controlling stake if it's going to proceed with the deal. Um, by all accounts, we think that will be the case when shareholders, shareholders finally make their elections. If the Valaris offer is finalized, will ADAPT IT be decentralized or rather put differently, what will the new ADAPT IT look like? Well, we'll be delisted from the JSE uh, because Valaris has a holding company that's listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange. That's Constellation Software Inc. Um, and we would, uh, the group, the Constellation Group and the Valaris Group run a federated model. They have hundreds of software companies globally. Uh, so Adapt IT will keep its brand, keep its leadership and continue to trade in the market as it has under, under a very similar strategy. So Valaris um, identified us as a company that had an excellent fit with their strategy. We have been acquisitive um, since 2006, and the nature of the kind of software businesses we invest in is very much in line with their strategy. So that's how they identified the fit with us, and um, we will very much be pursuing the same strategy going forward. All things considered, Tiffany, this must have been one of the most challenging years of your career, having to take over a company at the time you did during a heated hostile takeover. How have you managed all of this? Uh, Justin, I think, you know, interestingly, I've had that question today. Um, I think technology is phenomenal, the platform that it, it, it has allowed us, uh, you know, to transact business on. And, and I think that's been brought to the fore through everyone's experience of working from home with COVID. Um, similarly, uh, companies have, have relied upon their digital platforms to continue with their business. So in actual fact, spending less time on airplanes and traveling and more time connecting has actually been quite effective. Um, most, you know, multinational companies now transact most business electronically, or, you know, on the kind of platforms we're on now. And um, certainly, you know, uh, that's the norm. Um, and, you know, we've spent hundreds of hours of meetings um, with, with colleagues and, and with the Valaris group. And um, it, it's not, there's no impediment to, to getting the, the work done. So I think, uh, if anything, we probably work a bit much now that we have all these tools, uh, you know, we're, we're able to make ourselves accessible um, many hours of the day. So it has been certainly a very intense period. Uh, we are pleased to put, you know, put these results down and put the, um, the bulk of the work in the corporate actions behind us. So we're really excited to look forward to focusing again on our products, our customers and our markets um, and again getting the corporate action completed. Looking forward to resuming our acquisitive strategy in particular. I'm Justin Roberts of Business, and you've been listening to CEO of Adapt IT, Tiffany Dunstan. Have you visited the BizNews Wine Shop yet? If not, go shopping immediately at www.biznewsshop.com for a selection of great wines at just the right price, delivered straight to your door. T's and C's apply. I'm Jared News with Biz News, and joining me today is Alma Conradi, the CEO of Fly Saf Air. So you joined the company more than 15 years ago. Would you tell us a bit more about your background and what led you to your role as CEO? I actually joined Saf Air, like you say, 16 years ago um, as the CFO. Um, at that stage, we were pretty much a leasing company, and we just uh, did what we call ACMI flying, so contract flying. We, we actually flew for a lot of the other domestic airlines at that stage, the likes of Kame one time, SIA in Namibia. Um, and we also did a lot of flying in Africa, but never did passenger flying. We started Fly Safi in 2014. And I actually, six months after we started, I became CEO of Safi. For the first time, Fly Safi is launching an international route to Mauritius this December. 
Could you take us through this development and why Mauritius? It's quite a big step for us. It's like I told my team on Tuesday, they, they need to take a moment and just let it sink in that we're going international. We, we always focused on the, on the domestic market because that's what we knew. And we understood that our particular business model and the product that we offer isn't for everybody. You know, it's a, it's a very specific portion of the market, the leisure market that wants the low cost product. And it's generally leisure, leisure destinations. It doesn't mean that there aren't business people that travel with us. I think a lot of business travelers actually appreciate our sort of on-time departure statistics and being reliable. And, you know, I think when, when things go tough, everybody tries to save a little bit of money. But it's it's not our main sort of market normally. The leisure market is is more where we aim at. So the reason why Mauritius is primarily for that reason, it's more of a, a leisure market. And we think that, you know, our product will work on this specific route because it's more aimed at leisure travelers. How will this work with regards to COVID-19? Are there going to be any differences between vaccinated and unvaccinated travelers, for example? For Mauritius specifically, so so each country's got its own rules. Um, Mauritius rules are that if you are vaccinated, you can go there and you, you also need a negative PCR test. Most countries at this stage demand a, a negative PCR test before you enter the country. Um, and, the, and then you, you can basically travel throughout the whole um, island. You can go to your resort. You're not limited to any movement within Mauritius. If you're unvaccinated, however, you have to go into a 14-day quarantine. So at this stage, it's not I would say not really very attractive to, to unvaccinated travelers or holiday makers. You're going to want to be vaccinated if you want to go to Mauritius. With the oil price now over 80 US dollars, how does that affect your operating costs? Um, well, it, it affects us quite negatively, obviously, because, um, you know, it, it's got a direct impact on our operating costs. Together with that, you know, the, the exchange rate also plays a role because, you know, the oil prices in dollars, so then plus the exchange rate. So it's it's normally got a, a bit of a, a double effect because both of them affect us. So it will have a negative effect. And then, of course, what makes it a little bit more complicated is that we're now already selling for December. And actually, they're saying, you know, December is where they think the oil price might even hit $90 a barrel. You have the situation that you might actually sell tickets now and it's too cheap compared to the fuel price in, in December. So it, it will affect all the airlines quite negatively and all, not just in South Africa, across the world, it will affect uh, ticket prices. Just on to other challenges that you've been facing already. What has your airline obviously faced during the South African lockdown period that we've seen over the past 18 or so months? Sure. Um, it's almost a case of what didn't we face. Um, I, I, I don't think it. I mean, a lot of businesses have the same issues and the same complaints. But I think the, you know, when when it comes to COVID, I think you you almost need to see us as part of the tourism industry, and the tourism industry was particularly hard hit with no international travel travel coming to South Africa. And then a lot of the, the lockdown rules have a very negative effect on, on tourism specifically. You know, when they, when they don't allow the sale of liquor, when they close restaurants early, when there's curfew, all of those things make it less attractive for people to go for a weekend to Cape Town or to the Garden Route or to Durban or wherever. You know, it, it just sort of, oh, we're going to go there, but what can we do? We have to be at home by, you know, the restaurant closes by eight or whatever the case might be. So that, that, that's, you know, every time they implement those rules, it's got a big impact on us. Um, and then, you know, the uncertainty, you, you know, it's, it's every time it's sort of like when, how certain are we that we can operate these flights? You know, are they going to change curfew again? And then if they change curfew, you know, we have to unfortunately do schedule changes and then we mess around all our customers to tell them, okay, your flight's now not this time anymore, it's this time. Um, so, but we, we've addressed a lot of those issues with very good IT systems now. I think we're very streamlined now in terms of, you know, if there's a schedule change, we communicate it via email, via SMS, WhatsApp. Um, you know, you can go and select and change your own flights to other times. You can refund to voucher now on, 
on us. So, so we've added a lot of flexibility for our customers. So in the event that there's some change to the restrictions, that it's a lot easier for them to travel. And then just to close off with, this is really obviously a very exciting development for Fly Safir. Uh, but what's next? Where to next for the company? So, I mean, obviously, we would like to add a few more international destinations and regional destinations. It will still be focusing more on leisure routes. Um, and then, you know, we will continue to see whether there's any opportunities domestically. But we will be a little bit conservative at this stage until we a little bit more convinced and sure that, you know, there's going to be no more further restrictions and lockdowns and, you know, any anything that will affect the business as dras- drastically as level three and level four recently where, you know, some of the airlines even had to stop flying completely. Um, and then, then I think we, you know, the, the whole South African market at this stage is still only operating about 50% of the passenger numbers it did in 2019. So the travel market in South Africa is by no means recovered to pre-COVID. Um, so I think our first aim is just to recover to pre-COVID numbers um, and then, yeah, we we would like to add a few more um, international or regional destinations that's aimed at the leisure traveller. That was Almar Conradi, CEO of Fly Safair. I'm Jared Neves for Business. I'm Justin Roberts of Business, and with me today is Easy Equities Sean Keeling. Sean, always great to chat to the team at Easy, undoubtedly South Africa's favourite retail investing platform. September was a bit of a turbulent month for the equity markets. What was the general behavior like from South African retail investors? I could imagine a little bit skittish. How's it, Justin? Thanks so much for having me here today. You know, it's always lucky chatting to the clients and the community. So really lucky being here and thank you very much. Um, yeah, no, it was a little bit skittish. Um, but I mean, it's been interesting behavior across the, the past few months as is. So even if you say skittish, it's been interesting. I mean... We've seen similar buys and sells on the platform, and I'm sure we'll dive into that just now. I mean, the common trend still reoccurring. Um, so, yeah, interesting, I suppose, is the, the word of every month. <laughs> I guess that is the market, Sean. But let's start with the local market. I'm very interested to hear the most bought and sold stocks on the JSE on Easy this month. Okay, so I dived into the top five from the 30th of August to 28th of September. Obviously, with September not ending, so... At uh, the most bought, we have EC10 um, and Sassel being basically neck and neck. In third place, we have Sabanya Stillwater, uh, fourth Steinhoff, and in fifth, Aspen Pharma, Pharmacare Holdings. And most sold? Oh, sorry, yes. And most sold um, is Sassel by quite a way. Um, and then EC10, uh, Steinhoff, uh, Northern Platinum, and Investec Wealth Accelerator. Very interesting when I hear those names. I think Aspen Pharmacare it's had an incredible month. Sassold on the most bought and most sold. Sassold's had a nice run with the Brent crude price. And that EC10 crypto, it's a nice diverse basket for investors to get involved in cryptocurrencies without the volatility of Bitcoin or Ethereum or just one specific coin. Have we seen a lot of interest for EC10? And what do you think the reasons are, Sean? Yeah, no, that EC10 basket is really interesting, like you say. I mean, it's got a holding of, I looked at it this morning to get the exact weightings, 55.72% in Bitcoin, 24% in Ethereum. So, I mean, most of it, I mean, 80% of it is in those two, and then the rest breaks the diversity in the top 10. Um, and I think, it, you know, it's exciting. It's different. You know, it's for the retail investors that you can touch on what the crypto market is, and you've heard all this hype about it. So, it's nice to be able to invest in it in a regulated platform and in a product that you can trust, and then at least, like, try it out a bit. And, and that's why it's also top bought and sold. I mean, it's the same as you, when you look at all these crypto markets going up and down. So I, I get that. And it's a nice touch for investors just to be able to feel it out in. And Sean, Purple Group, when I've chatted to Lissetti and Carly in the past, it's always been their Purple Group, that being the holding company for Easy Equities. Where did that feature or did it feature at all? So Purple did feature. also just looked at like the top volumes over the last three months just to sort of see where the buy and sell was. So in the, in the top, in the, in the, uh, in the past three months, Purple Group did feature in the top bought. Um, it came in about sixth place there, seventh place. Um, so at least, you know, it's, it's nice to see the, the parent company still trading there, which it is really lacquer. But it also featured in the top sold in about sixth place. So, you know, guys are in and out at the same time. I suppose that's all the top shares. So, you know, lacquer to see the name there, though. 
But sure, that's the equity markets. For every buyer, there's a seller, and that makes the 100%. market. Now, just going on to the U.S., I know through my previous chats with Lissetti and Carly that the easy equity community have seen incredible returns through the mega tech titans in the U.S., the FANG specifically, namely Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google. But tell us about more of the action there, the most bought and the most sold. So again, those FANG stocks are there. Um, I mean, in, in the most bought, though, we have, we have Tesla topping the pops in the last month, um, with se- uh, second with Apple in, uh, coming in second, then Alibaba, and then really lacquer is two ETFs. We have the Vanguard S&P 500 and the Vanguard Total World Stock. So that's cool that two ETFs jumped in there. Um, on the top sold, we also have Tesla topping the pops there, about exactly the same amount bought and sold. Apple again in second. We have Amazon in third there, um, Planter Technologies in fourth, and Microsoft in fifth. So a lot of FANG stocks in there, but like I said, really lack it to see some ETFs being bought in there, and I think that marketing, people are starting to understand it and buy more into it. And that's pretty much leads on to my next question, Sean. The rise of passive investing and ETFs have become very unpopular investment interest, instruments. Uh, lots to choose from on the Easy Equities platform. Which ETFs attracted the most attention in September? So, I mean, yeah, like I said, lots to choose from. I mean, we have all the ETFs that are available on the JC, which is at 85 at the moment, with the inclusion of the last three last month. Um, looking at the, the Zar one, we have a few of the Satrix ones in the top board. We have the Satrix S&P 500, the Satrix MSCI World, the Satrix 40, Satrix NASDAQ 100, and then in fifth place, we have the Signal Atrix 4th Industrial Revolution. I'm Justin Roberts of Biz News, and you've been listening to Easy Equities' Sean Keeling. This interview is brought to you by First Rand. I'm Linda van Tolberg for Bears News. A double amputee from Pretoria, Ntando Mashlangu, became an international sensation when he won double gold medals at the Tokyo 2020 Paralympic Games in August. Ntando stormed to the finish to clinch gold in the men's 200T61 and then not only managed to win another gold for the T63 long jump, he broke a world record with a final leap of 7.17 meters. What empowered this teenager to fly and succeed was Pretoria prosthesis expert Johan Sneders, known as the Blades Doctor. Sneders not only gives mobility and athleticism to young amputees through his charity Jumping Kids, he also enables them to get an academic qualification. I think Ntana did really good. We didn't expect everything to, to go the way it went. So he's currently a 19-year-old in office, Afrikaans Oerseans, a boys' school in Pretoria. And to keep a, a matric boy busy, you know, one of the things was like, you know, why don't we, we look at the long jump as a possibility? And then obviously, I don't think you change your strategy before games, but we had a chat with a local uh, long jump coach and, and uh, look if we can get him safe in the pit, being a, a double above the amputee. And uh, he did really well, you know. We were looking to steal a bronze medal, but the gold and the world record wasn't in our mix. We didn't think about that. It was really special. So you thought he would do well in the 200 meter, but didn't in any way expect uh, a second gold medal? Thunder is, um, is quite a versatile athlete. He's doing 400 as well as the 800 at school level. And he's running competitive times in, in those distances. And so the Paralympic movement has, has changed since 2017. So 2016, we, we were in, in Rio. 2017, world champs was in London. I don't know if you remember that. Then we had the option of 100 as well as a 200. But, you know, there's so many athletes that the Paralympic Committee moved some of the items around. And so there's only two items that you can compete in, the 200 and the, the long jump. So his uh, biggest rival in the, in the 200 is England's Richard Whitehead. And, and we have a long-standing relationship with Richard. And so we knew Tanu had a good chance in the 200. But as I said, you know, we sometimes have to keep these youngsters busy. Well, you've known him from a really young age. Can you tell us his story? I have a, a, have a involvement in, in disabled sports for a number of years. Obviously, after the 2012 Games in, in London, I met Tanu just before the Games. And, and just after the Games, we, we fitted him with a with set of prosthetic legs. You should be fairly familiar with double above knee amputees. Most of them will be in a wheelchair. 
And if you look at the, the functional ability of double above the amputees, is that the, the mobility is very limited. So when I met Tanner the first time, he, he said to me he would like to run and he would like to play soccer or football. And being a South African and seeing what the South African youngsters are doing, like they're constantly chasing after a ball. So it made sense, rehabilitation-wise, to, to fit him with a set of blades and then to see him grow. So uh, he's just it's just been phenomenally. So obviously we are looking at what Richard White is doing in, on your side. And uh, Richard, I think at a similar stage, ran a sub one minute, 400 meters. And um, I think that inspired a lot in what we can do with these youngsters. So, um, yeah, and Tandu, obviously we, we fitted him in 2012. And he was doing so well at school. He was in a disabled school in, in Pretoria called the Pretoria School for Disabled. But they had a very limited curriculum. At 16, they normally tried to get these youngsters to, to go out. That's what the curriculum, the academic curriculum provides. We just saw potential in him and we moved him out of the disabled school into a mainstream school in our area called Constantia Park. It's a, it's a primary school and predominantly Afrikaans. You had to, when we made the arrangements, you had to learn uh, additional language. And we also kept him back a year so he can work on, on mathematics because, you know, we feel that academics is the only thing that we could, or education for that matter, is the only way to, to change the background of these youngsters. So, yeah, the rest is history. You know, 2015, we went to the, the Iowa's World Champs. Uh, 2016, we went to um, Rio as a 14-year-old. You know, got silver in Rio. Crazy. And then, obviously, a lot of doors will open. So, to go to a high school made, made our life much easier. And he went from being an African school, he went to office, which is a boys' school. Again, let's keep these kids busy. And... The rest is what you've seen, you know, uh, the, the progress of, of 2016 to 2020 or 2021 has been phenomenal. Yeah. He's doing really well as an athlete, but he's also doing extremely well as a kid in a mainstream school with kids from diverse different backgrounds. Well, before we get to exactly what you do to explain that to us, I mean, how did you feel when he achieved this? You must have felt emotional. Uh, in Tokyo? Yep. Tokyo was extremely emotional. Uh, you know, it's... I had a chat with him, uh, you know, about the long jump. The long jump coach couldn't get the accreditation to go to Tokyo. So he was in Pretoria and I was next next to the field. And so I had a WhatsApp call to him and we had a, we had a video that we had to send over and we do it, have to do enough analysis. And then, um, you know, we have to chat to him on to do his run up. But I think as a 19 year old, he's so level headed that I think he was so well prepared mentally that the stress and those things associated with something like the Paralympic Games was easier for him. So, yeah, our aim was seven meters, and our aim was to see if we could potentially steal a medal because uh, he's competing in the same category as the single above knee amputees. And uh, there's a Danish, German, and a Japanese athlete that potentially could take it. Then he was the odd one out. And yeah, when he jumped the seven on his first jump, I think he completely upset everybody in the in the group, and, and the guys got stressed, and, and he was actually quite relaxed. Then he had a couple of jumps, I think, having some fun, and on the last jump, you know, um, what a phenomenal jump! You know, over seven meters, and I, and I come back to what I'm saying is that majority of above knee amputees, the point of reference is a wheelchair, so for a double above to to be able to generate that amount of the speed and, and acceleration and then jump seven over seven meters was really phenomenal. I think he was extremely emotional when, when we realized what happened. I think I was even more emotional than him. I didn't sleep that much. <laughs> uh, I can imagine. Well, Jan, explain to us exactly what you do. and What do they call you? I'm an officer of trade, officer's process of profession. I have a, a keen interest in rehabilitation a very active pediatric clinic in Pretoria where we take care of, of various kids from various ages and we try to encourage kids to be active and, and to develop big motor skills at an early age and kids only play when they're young kids only develop when they're young so you have like very small window run about up to 12 where you could I wouldn't say manipulate children but you can work with children and you can encourage them to participate in sport and if you can get them interested, especially in South Africa, we have lots of challenges when it comes to education. 
if you can get them interested at a young age and they can compete at the national level, and let's say they get the, the, the provincial colors, let's call them now Gauteng colors, whatever you want to call it, then immediately for us to apply at a mainstream school for a bursary or for placement for a kid is possible. So that's actually the story, and that's actually what we're trying to do, trying to manipulate the, the system almost. This interview was brought to you by First Rand. For more stories of South African success, visit the Good Hope section at biznews.com. And that's where we leave it for tonight's edition of the Biz News Power Hour. From myself, Stuart Lerman, and the rest of the Biz News team, until tomorrow, same time, same place, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.